following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, as I said at the outset of our service today, we are going to be talking about politics and religion, um, which, as far as I remember, are the topics you're you're supposed to leave out of polite company. Uh, So we're going to do our best. Um, But even before I told you that, you probably had a little bit of... um, Feelings of stress and anxiety uh, during this contentious election season, I think we have all felt that at one time or another. And so, in order to calm our hearts a little bit and um, help us through this difficult time, I decided that it was important for me to show you an animated gif of an otter mom with her otter baby (laughs) on her belly floating in the river on her back. So let's just all pause and admire the otter. (sighs) You didn't know you needed that, did you? (laughs) Now, here's the good news. If you need this otter again between now and Tuesday night, uh, you can just Google otter mom gif, and you'll find her at the ready. to soothe your troubled soul. All right. But in all seriousness, here's what I want to ask you to consider for a moment. I'm going to show you a photo of two children. Um, Now, if you're listening on the podcast or if you are in the room and can't quite make out the screen for one reason or another, uh, this is just a photo of a little boy and a little girl. I would say that they're maybe three years old, somewhere in that range. Beautiful little children. And my hope is that as you look at the picture of these two children, you will think of a child or children in your own life who are important to you, who you're close to. Maybe it's your own son or daughter. Maybe it's a grandchild if you have a grandchild. Um, Maybe it's a niece or a nephew or a a kid from the neighborhood who you're especially close to. Uh, Maybe it's one of your students if you're a teacher. Maybe it's the son or daughter of your best friend. We all have some children who we're close to in our lives. And I want you to think about those children who you're close to as you look at these children. And remember the innocence of a child, the beauty uh, of a child's face, the potential that is contained in that person's life at that moment, the love that seems to radiate from you when you are around that child. Um, St. Cyprian said, In the kiss of an infant, every one of us ought for our very religion's sake to consider the still recent hands of God, which in some sort we are kissing. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about, that when you kiss a little baby, God's fingerprints, God's hands are still, you can still feel the warmth there. Have you experienced that with some of the children in your own life? And um, so now I want to show you these two children as adults. And as you may have guessed already, this was a photograph of Donald Trump and a photograph of Hillary Clinton when they were children. Now it's safe to say that the pictures on the top of the image, of the adult version, probably everybody in the whole room thinks that at least one of those two people is a 
disgusting embarrassment to democracy and human decency. That's the kind of language, that's the kind of bile, that's the kind of feeling that has been welling up in all of us for weeks and weeks and weeks now. But I want to remind you to think instead of the fact that these two individuals are beloved children of God, that they are, whatever else might be said about them, bearers of the divine image, that no matter what either one or both of them has ever done or ever will do, that they are blessed human souls. And we're going to talk about politics today. The the title of today's sermon is Empire and Election. And even though I very sincerely hope that the way that I talk about this will help us break out of the deep ruts of partisan rhetoric that have been ground into our minds for months on end, I know that it's actually nearly impossible to go very far in any political conversation without causing stress and strain and resentment and maybe even anger. And so it was important to me that we began with that exercise of humanizing these two people who have been so dehumanized by the, by the whole process. And I hope that by extension we're able to humanize each other given the, the range of political opinion that is present in the room today. So, that having been said, let me tell you what I am hoping to do. Uh, in the time that we have. What I want to do is describe what I see as the big picture of how politics are regarded in the Bible. And uh, obviously, well, maybe not obvious to you if you don't know that much about the Bible, but I will tell you if, if you don't know that there's all kinds of stuff about politics in the Bible. It is shot through with politics. And I could not possibly give one sermon on the politics of the Bible and hope to do it any kind of justice. It would be, it would be more of like a six- to eight-week series, which at this point in our nation's history might be the last straw for some of us. So what I want to do instead is give you what I will call two bookends, two big-picture things that kind of frame the, the whole conversation that, will, that, will, that would give us, if we were to do that exercise of going through all the talk of politics in the Bible, would give us uh, lenses, if you will, to, to look at them through. These are the bookends that kind of hold all the information on the shelf. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's going to have to be broad. That's the only way we can do this. So here's, here's what we'll do. I, will, I think I'm probably going to be pretty brief with it because it's better to just say it succinctly and then not try to keep going. And, and hopefully at the end we'll have a little bit of time where we can actually have some some dialogue, um, because the last thing anybody needs right now probably is, is one person with a microphone talking for 30-plus minutes with no opportunity for anybody else to respond, right? We've seen enough of that. So that's my hope that we'll get through it quickly enough to do that. So uh, we are ostensibly still in, in this series on the book of Deuteronomy called The Second Law, and so let's start with a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 17. Now, I'll try to put page numbers, and some of the text will also be on the screen. If you'd like to follow along in the Bibles, the red Bibles are the, what the page numbers refer to. Um, but you don't have to. You can certainly just listen, and I think you'll get most of what's going on. Remember, Moses is uh, speaking to the people, the Israelites, on the cusp of the promised land. They are about to enter into this land that God promised their ancestor Abraham 
generations and generations and generations ago. And finally, all these promises are coming to their fruition in this moment. They're about to go into the promised land. And here's one, one of the things that Moses says to them as they prepare. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you has, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Now, it's interesting that Moses would say this because there was no king in Israel at this point. Right? Let's jump ahead in the history a little bit, and I'll tell you when the, when the monarchy of God's people began. We need to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? Um, and uh, the, the people have entered the promised land, and they've established themselves there, and they've been governed in a certain way by uh, a series of judges who oversaw disputes, and some of them uh, led the people out in battle, and it's sort of like a tribal chieftain was, was basically the way you could think of a, a judge of Israel. But the people come to a breaking point with that system, and they, they come to Samuel. Here, well, here, let me just read it to you. When Samuel, who, who was the judge, became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us, like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they've done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. So I want to think of 1 Samuel 8 and this event where the people ask Samuel to appoint them a king like their neighbors have as the first bookend. This is the first, the, the, the first side of the frame, if you will. They, the people have rejected God as their king. Now, the second bookend comes from the Christian scriptures, from the New Testament. So we're going to go ahead to John's gospel, John 18, starting in verse 33. Now, Jesus has been arrested, and he's been interrogated by the religious authorities, Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas has passed him on to the uh, political authorities, and he's about to be questioned, he is being questioned, rather, by Pilate, who's a Roman official. Uh, Let's read verse 33. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from the world... My followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So this is the second bookend. The first bookend is 1 Samuel 8, when the people reject God as their king, and they insist on having a human king, just like their neighbors do. And the second bookend is Jesus being interrogated by the empire, by Rome, and his response is, my kingdom 
is not from this world. Now, if you imagine a shelf with these bookends on it, stacked up in between these two bookends, there's a, there's a whole bunch of ideas about politics as seen in the Bible. And these are the things I'd have to talk about if I was teaching on uh, a comprehensive view of politics in the Bible. Ideas about how Israel should interact with their neighbors and with their enemies. We've talked about that in this very series on Deuteronomy. Ideas about how Israel should govern themselves and how the original intention was that God would be their king. It's a theocracy. There would be ideas for the Christians uh, who emerged in the first century and how they should try to exist and coexist within the Roman Empire and the governments of that world, except, of course, when it runs contrary to their faith, which turned out to be uh, often enough to get many of them killed. But these two bookends frame everything else. God's design for humankind, that he would be their direct king, that no human should rule over any other, and Jesus, who taught continually about how the kingdom of God was near, was at hand, saying that that kingdom, his kingdom, is not from our own world. You see, Israel's calling was that they would be a blessing to all the other families, all the other nations of the earth. God's blessing was poured out on them so that they could pour out blessing on others. They were elected, chosen by God for this purpose. No king required. And now the church, not any, not any specific nation on earth, but the church is called to carry out that original calling to be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth, and we are called to do it in the way of Jesus. And what is the way of Jesus? Well, it's not power politics, you see. Uh, that would be the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. All the authority has been given to me, and I'll give it to you if you just bow down to me. Jesus rejected that from the very beginning of his ministry. It's not power politics, but love. After all, it was the state, in collusion with the uh, religious authorities, of course, who killed Jesus, who executed him, and Jesus, who subjected himself to that death, self-sacrificially, in love, and extending forgiveness. So for the Christian, uh, despite what you might hear in, in American uh, Christian rhetoric, representative democracy is not the highest or final form of government any more than the Roman Senate was or any other human government that's ever been established on earth. Rather, we as Christians are citizens of a cruciform divine monarchy. How about that for a phrase? Cruciform in that it is fully expressed on the cross of Jesus. Divine in that it's once again a restoration of God's original design for, for all people to be governed by him, to be ruled by him rather than by human hands and human minds. And it's a monarchy because Jesus is the king. So our job as Christians is actively to work to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's 
why Jesus instructed his, his disciples to pray what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's our job as subjects of Christ's kingdom to make that reality come about. Um, let's call that bringing the gospel to bear in our world. That's kind of a catchy little phrase, right? Now, in bringing the gospel to bear in our world, we are, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, I've read that verse a bunch of times in in 2 Corinthians 5 about being ambassadors for Christ, and I I tend to, you know, fly through it and read quickly and think, well, it's it's a metaphor. We're just called, it just means that we're supposed to, right? And of course, it is a metaphor, but think of what an ambassador actually does. An ambassador is a representative from a foreign government that lives in your own and uh, intercedes and represents uh, the interests of that foreign government in your land and then communicates back, right? Could you imagine that we are ambassadors in that sense, like with the suit or uh, uh, the pantsuit and the briefcase, <laughs> We are ambassadors for Christ in a world where the government is not God's kingdom. But because our reality is that we do live in nations. By the way, this is not going to change. I don't think this will change. We live in nations. These nations that we live in have governments. We are always going to have to struggle to figure out, to find the right balance between working to bring the gospel to bear within the political process versus working to bring the gospel to bear outside of the political process. But either way, we have been elected as the church chosen by God to represent Christ's heavenly kingdom in the empires of the world. Empire and election. So let's make that the basis of our conversation. I'm confident about everything I just said. Now I'm going to step out beyond the boundaries of what I'm confident in, and I'm going to share with you a little bit of what, what has going on in my own heart and life over the past couple of years. And this is, this is the uh, part of the sermon where I say... Um, a grain of salt, a little bit of grace. Uh, you're seeing something in process. I, you know, uh, it would be better for me. I decided to just tell you that, <laughs> and to share with you what's going on because I, it, maybe it's helpful. Maybe even seeing that process is helpful for some of you. But this is not the kind of thing that I would. I would. Um, you know, I'm not really a stamp my feet and pound my fist preacher anyway, as you know. Uh, but do you see that this is this is going to be a little bit different? This part, and then we'll talk a little bit because I think we have we have some time. I'll tell you what I wish I could have said and what I probably would have said a few years ago about this. I probably would have said, uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. And because he said that and because we are subject of his kingdom, it doesn't matter. This political stuff doesn't matter. I don't care if you vote. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter who wins. It doesn't matter who's on the ballot. It doesn't matter who's not. We are subjects of Christ's kingdom and it doesn't matter because that's some other place. That's, a, that's kind of an overstatement, perhaps, of what you might, might call Anabaptist uh, theology, um, which I've been reading a lot of, and which in some ways really appeals to me. I, 
I would have liked to preach that message because that feels good and it's easy to, uh, to um, at least have the appearance of staying above the fray. <laughs> and the problem is that over the last few years, the other thing that has happened is I have uh, found myself uh, blessed to have new relationships with different types of people uh, from different backgrounds. And what I have learned in the past few years is that for many people, disengaging with the political process is not an option because their bodies are political objects in a way that my straight white male body never has been and likely won't be. And so I cannot look my friends in the eye and say, I don't think it matters who you vote for. I don't think it matters who's elected. I don't think any of that matters because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Do you see that I am in a place of privilege where I could take that approach, I could hold that posture, and it probably wouldn't harm me. But not everybody has that luxury. And the, the construction, the building up of those relationships over the past few years has left me, quite frankly, puzzled. Because I don't know sometimes whether to engage with public policy and the political process, whether to try to work outside of it. I just don't know. I think both things have to happen. I'm very confident that neither national party's uh, political platform carries the kingdom of God forward uh, in a perfect way. But beyond that, I don't, I don't know. So, um, what if we took maybe less than 10 minutes and uh, I give you a chance to say something? Now, you can ask a question of me if you wish, especially if it's a clarifying type question, but really, I don't want this to be Scott the Answer Man because clearly I don't have them. Instead, what I'd like this to be is a chance for the community as a whole to be able to speak into this this um, reality, if you will. What thoughts do you have on this? How have you come down? What solutions? Do, if anybody has the answer, please be the one to, to raise your hand. Mike, can you be the, the MC with the microphone? Thank you. So we'll just take a few minutes and do this, and if nobody says anything, that's fine too. Uh, yeah, I just had a, what I hope is a brief thought um, relating to how a lot of our discourse this political season has happened over social media, as we all know. And um, as we all know on Facebook now, you don't just like something, but you have those five or six buttons of like, love, wow, sorrow, anger. And it's become an analogy for me about how many things have happened, either from one political side or the other, or from one tragedy or one uh, economic travesty or another, that everyone wants to hit that angry button. And Jesus pretty rarely hit the angry button. He went to the temple once and flipped some tables. Um, but I think the sorrow button is more appropriate, and I think that is a more appropriate way for us to react to what we're seeing, not in anger, but accept the challenges behind and the sorrow behind what we're seeing, and then, again, our, part of our value is look for ways to fix it, look for ways to solve the underlying problems. So it's trite, but avoid the anger button. There was a time years ago that... I basically decided not to vote and thought, as you did, it doesn't matter. God's kingdom, we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven, as Paul says. But then 
Paul, who said that, also used his Roman citizenship to his advantage <laughs> um, to get him transferred to Rome, to where he could be judged by Caesar himself. And, you know, it's that dichotomy, and Paul, Paul has a lot of dichotomies, a lot of things that he'll say one thing and do something else, but that one sort of convinced me that, you know, being totally um, separated from the political, you know, arena is, you know, it, it's a nice thing to think about, but it's probably not practical. I've been thinking a lot about exactly what, what we're talking about, the whole idea of, of having kind of two separate sort of rules that we're under, the rule of God and Christ, and then the rule of the country that we live in. And um, I don't know how much this adds to the conversation, but I came to the conclusion that there's a significance to the generationality of it. So the idea that whatever tradition you were probably raised in, especially if you were raised in the church, or even if you weren't, you know, if you get to that point where you have a significantly different opinion than your previous generation, there's a lot of temptation to just subscribe to the it doesn't matter rule because in a way it gives you a nice tidy answer in those awkward conversations to just say, well, we shouldn't focus on this so much because we're you know servants of Christ and, and not of the world. Um, and for me, I, I've had to, similar to you, move past that a little bit, and I don't have the answer either, but I realized that part of the reason I liked that answer was that it allowed me to avoid conflict and, and uh, to think, avoid thinking more deeply about it. Just say, I'm not voting, or I'm not going to research the candidates, or, and obviously this is the national election, and so it gets a lot of attention, but um, it also gave me a way out of the the smaller elections that actually our, our local vote has a lot more impact in as well. So I think it's important to think about, but that was one thought that I had. I think what's really um, challenged me is speaking about that generationally and, and how that works. And if you come to a place where you're very different from the generation before you, lots of times it's easily dismissed by that former generation and then in retaliation, you dismiss the other. Um, and that dismissiveness is really harmful because we stop listening. Um, even to somebody that we, I mean, you, you might terribly disagree with and think that it's just um, a very harmful view that the other might have. It's coming from a place of brokenness too. And to, dis, to dismiss it and just not hear it, I think is the most harmful thing when we just throw labels at each other and harmful terms. And I think that's, that's where what saddens me the most is how easily we can, well, that person's crazy, so I don't have to actually consider what they say. That side's just crazy or of the devil. You just can't listen to it. So I just pray that we start just hearing each other. I want to make two thing, two points and I'm, hope I say them succinctly. Um, the first one is just a confession that I struggle a lot with that line between justice and speaking out on behalf of people that I think are too often dismissed or not heard. 
but also knowing it's blessed to be peacemaker and it's blessed to be gentle. And my reaction is often, well, it's not, it's not being a peacemaker to give way to someone because they're not comfortable hearing that they have privilege or they're not comfortable confronting their own biases. Um, and I don't know where that line is exactly um, because I do want to have a gentle spirit when I engage in these topics. The second thing is um, less political, but on that generational comment that we've been talking um, couple weeks ago we talked about how the Israelites had to remember Egypt and when they actually entered the promised land none of those people had been in Egypt or at least they didn't they were so young they may not have remembered the plagues or the miracles and today with the generational gap I think the generations before us there have been a lot of scandals. There have been a lot of things that they've done wrong. And we tend to brush aside, quote, the religious right or the um, conservative politics. But they did lay a foundation. And I think there's something to be said for remembering that they've brought us to this point. Even if they made huge mistakes, there are things that have gotten us to where we are today. Um as we go, you know, as we go forward and hopefully reach the promised land, so to speak, um, they have taught us a lot of things and to try to respect that without necessarily, um, keeping the parts that they've gotten wrong. So I, you know, everybody's talked about sort of the anger. I, I think, I don't know, I've tried to pay attention to the elections in the past as well as you can at 20 or whatever. Um, but I've noticed more with this election and as they've progressed, the anger and the hate and all of that that spews forth. But I think mostly what I've seen is fear. And I don't know how many of us make fantastic decisions when we're scared. So that is very concerning. Thank you, everybody who shared. And I'm sorry that we had to cut it off because I know there was a lot more conversation that, that could have happened there. And the conversation is good. And um, if we can continue those conversations in person, I think that's to everybody's benefit, especially if we do it in a respectful way um, and in a way that kind of radiates Christ, regardless of what we may believe um, politically. So, um, well, thank you. Uh, it's helpful for me to hear from, from the community on, on things like this, and it happened in the first service as well. So I appreciate everybody's input. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, um, and we will... Uh, respond to this um, examination of God's word um, and to what's happened among us uh, as a community at the communion table. Uh, I mentioned earlier that some people's bodies are political objects in a way that mine probably isn't. Jesus' body is and was a political object nailed to that tree by the political entity, by the powers of the day. Um, it ought to continue to be a political object as we seek to bring about Christ's kingdom in our world. So uh, our table is open. Any who's seeking to follow Jesus today in this place is welcome to come and receive. You can take a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups. We have both wine and juice. Please choose the one that would be responsible for you and for your family. Um, and remember his sacrifice, but also remember uh, what happens when you start to participate and proclaim his death and resurrection in a broken world. 
Uh, and if you'd like to receive personalized prayer, Dell is here, uh, a member of the prayer team, to pray with you. So would you respond as the Spirit leads? We'll continue to worship in song and in sacrament. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.